0: and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of have you ever seen the rain a unique version of a classic by nimbus cloud nimbus cloud is our featured ohio musical artist tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song but right now let's throw another log on the fire campers let's dig up a new ohio mystery I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. On October 9, 1973, authorities in Wadsworth, Ohio, were called to the Wadsworth Foundry for a gruesome discovery. One of the employees had been burned alive in a blast furnace. The investigation was relatively short, at least from the public's perspective. An Ohio fire marshal's report called it an industrial accident, and the death of Benny Mosdiller was limited to a single short newspaper story that never heard about again. We now know that authorities never thought Benny's death was an industrial accident almost certainly it was homicide with a killer whose identity will never be known. The author of that book, Mike Berg, is going to join us in a few minutes. Mike spent 38 years with the police department in the nearby Wayne County city of Rittman, rising all the way up to chief of police before he retired in 2016. His recent book, done in conjunction with the Wadsworth Area Historical Society, is called Wadsworth Area Homicides and Deaths of Suspicious Nature. And when it comes to the most confounding of those suspicious deaths, Chief Berg said Benny Mostiller is at the top of his list. Before we talk to the chief, let me tell you more about this one incident in his book, Because while Benny Mosteller will never get justice, at least for our short time here, we can acknowledge that his life ended unfairly and too soon. Benny William Mosteller was born in 1917 in Holland, Georgia. That's a small, unincorporated crossroads about an hour and a half's drive northwest of Atlanta. When Benny was in his mid thirties, he made the move to Akron, Ohio. We don't know exactly why, but Northeast Ohio was known to attract a lot of laborers from the South to fill its steel companies, its auto plants, its rubber factories, and of course, all of the many businesses that supported those industries. I don't know if Benny. Brought his nickname with him or earned it while he was there, but friends and family called him Blue Still. And apparently it was a name they used frequently enough that they even included it in the title of his obituary. At some point, Benny found employment at the Wadsworth Foundry. The Foundry, as fate would have it, was born the same year as Benny in 1917. It was a metal manufacturer that employed about 150 people, and they made castings for use in things like pumps, electric motors, and machine tools. The foundry was at 142 Auble Street in Wadsworth. That's a blue-collar community in Medina County with a reputation for being quaint and family-friendly. In 1973, its population was just over 13,000. Benny didn't live there. He commuted from Akron where he lived on Noble Street and was an active member of the Greater Bethel Baptist Church. He was originally married to a woman named Ella but that didn't work out. The couple divorced in 1964 and both eventually remarried. Benny's second wife was Robbie, a woman who brought several children to the union. Benny became a stepdad to four sons and two daughters, and by 1973, they had made him a step-grandpa 10 times over. Now, on October 9 that year, the 56-year-old Benny went to work for his regular evening shift. Part of Benny's job was to clean the cold furnace and get it ready for the morning run. The equipment he was cleaning that day was called a cupola furnace. It's a melting device so hot. It can turn cast iron into liquid. It's shaped like a huge cylinder with a bottom that is fitted with doors that swing down and out. And Benny would use a ladder to climb up into the furnace to clean it out. A workman passing by the furnace that night saw Benny as he was climbing the ladder. But a bit later, a night supervisor noticed Benny was missing and he went looking for him. He found Benny just shortly after midnight. Benny was still clinging to the ladder as if he had tried to flee the fire of a furnace that should not have been lit. Two Wadsworth fire truckers responded to the company's call for help. Firefighters detached Benny from the ladder, but there was nothing else they could do for him. As I said earlier, this incident was reported in area newspapers, a small inside story described as an industrial accident, then never revisited. But inside the police station, detectives knew better. For starters, the furnace could only be lit by a long lighter, not unlike the way one might start a grill. And Benny certainly didn't light it himself. Now, deaths associated with blast furnaces are exceedingly rare. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, in the past 35 years, there have been fewer than 20 deaths across the country related to such furnaces. And I couldn't find a single accident described like the one that involved Benny. Authorities knew that even back then, in 1973, Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigation came in and tested the setup to prove Benny could not have done it. So if not Benny, then who? There was no obvious motive. By all accounts, Benny was well-liked, and investigators couldn't find anyone who meant him harm or had a bad word to say about him. Polygraphs were given to every employee working that day, and they all passed. None of them admitted to hearing or seeing anything out of order that night. One theory was that maybe it was a prank that went too far, that maybe someone thought igniting the furnace would scare Benny, but that he'd have enough time to escape the heat. One police officer, Carl Godsey, said, I know he was killed. I just don't know by who or why. Benny's body was returned to Holland, Georgia for burial. A month after his death, his wife, Robbie, took out a large classified ad in the Akron Beacon Journal to thank relatives, friends, and neighbors for their support. She also thanked Wine Merchant Restaurant, Turner Funeral Home, and the employees of Wadsworth Foundry. Although many suspected one of those employees was her husband's killer.
0: So let's welcome to Ohio Mysteries, Mike Berg, the author of Wadsworth Area Homicides and Deaths of Suspicious Nature.
2: This is Alex Hastings, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments.
0: When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage.
2: So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you. Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time?
1: Well, we are welcoming to our program, Mike Berg. Mike, how are you today? Very good. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for being with us. Listen, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Well, I'm a Wadsworth native and uh, knew from age 14 that I wanted to be a policeman. Once out of Wadsworth High School, class of 72, I uh, went to work for Norton PD as a dispatcher for four and a half years then went to Rittman PD as a patrolman and stayed there for 38 and a half years. And uh, I was uh, there as a patrolman, a sergeant, and uh, my last nine years were as chief. And in 1992, I was fortunate enough to graduate from the FBI National Academy.
1: What a wonderful career. You know, I think of Ritman as being kind of a really quaint, small, cozy kind of town. In your career there, did you ever have any, you know, extraordinary cases?
3: Yeah, in fact, just uh, just prior to to my retirement, several years before, we had a, a young guy who admitted to being on some private property looking for a place to poach deer, and he found a human femur. Uh, my guys went out and secured the scene, and then of course the BCI uh, they came out and they did a little excavating of their own and determined that the. Uh, that the bones that were there and the bones that were found were indeed uh, human so once that was determined then of course it became a coroner's case and the coroner came out she called in a, a group of uh, forensic anthropologists from Mercyhurst College in uh, Pennsylvania and they did an all-day dig out there and long story short after about two years we actually found out who this person was and was able to return the bones to the family, and the gentleman was uh, bo- uh, buried in I believe it was Minnesota with his parents.
1: Wow. Well, what were the circumstances of his death? Did you were you able to piece that together at all?
3: Yeah, we actually found a sister who lived in Orville, and she said that he he lived alone. He worked at the, well at that particular time it would have been the box board, the, the big paper company that was in Rittman. He loved to go walking in the woods, and every time she talked to him, he'd say, oh, I saw a fox today, or I saw – he loved going out walking in the woods. He also had considerable health problems, and, of course, with only bones left, and he passed away in 1963. He laid out there that long.
1: So it could have been completely natural.
3: Yeah, they they figured that uh, he just – he had uh, numerous health issues. And they figured he was just out for one of his regular walks in the woods because he was definitely way back in the woods and just had some a health emergency of some sort and uh, passed away out there in the woods.
1: That is amazing. It, it must have been so interesting for you to see the process, the anthropological part of it and just how the whole system came together to identify this man and, and get his bones to his family.
3: It was very interesting and and I uh I really liked watching the uh the the forensic anthropologists from Mercyhurst do their thing. That was that was really interesting. I mean, you see it, you know, on all the true crime shows, but to see it firsthand it was really a uh, really a treat for me.
1: Oh yeah, I mean there are probably police chiefs in larger cities that never get that opportunity, so Oh, what a treat for you. Now, when did you decide you wanted to write this book? Had you been like sort of collecting this information throughout your career?
3: No, it started in 2009. Uh, like I said, I'm a Wadsworth native, and then I still live here, And uh, but working in ripman the, the chief in Wadsworth at the time, was Dave Singleton, he and I have been friends for a long, long, long time, uh, back to when we were both patrolmen and um, he knew that i was interested in local law enforcement history and uh, in 2009 wadsworth was doing this massive records purge and they came across a a black and white 8 by 10 picture of what appeared to be a fatal car crash but there were just there were two people laying in the street in a crashed car and an officer standing there it It wasn't marked so he called me and says hey can you stop by on your way home and I stopped by to take a look at the picture and I said well I don't know what this is but I recognize the officer so I had him make me a copy of the picture and I took it uh, to that officer who was long since retired he said oh yeah I said that that wasn't a fatal car crash he goes that was a uh, a murder suicide and gave me the story. And then I got to thinking, well, how many others had there been that we don't know about or that uh, haven't been chronicled or, or uh, written down or that lost to history or that sort of thing? So at that point in 2009, I started doing some research here and there, uh, mostly uh, two, my, my two favorite spots or the uh, the Johnson House in, in uh, Wadsworth, which is run by the Wadsworth Area Historical Society. They have a research room on the second floor. And then my, my number two spot is the uh, Wadsworth Library's uh, local history room, because they have all the old Wadsworth newspapers on uh, microfiche that you can look through and uh, make copies of articles. So that's where it all started.
1: Now, you had cases that went back quite a bit. Did you go in, into the 1800s with some of your cases?
3: Yes, the first one was
1: 1824. Oh, wow. Wow. What a trip to into the past that must have been for you. How many murders and suspicious deaths did you cover in total in that book?
3: There were 47 cases out of Wadsworth. There were 33 homicides, 10 deaths of suspicious nature, and four that were unconfirmed. And I called them unconfirmed because I found some information that leads me to believe that something happened, and, and it, it looks like something happened, but I could never find any documentation that it happened. And then at the end of the book, uh, I put uh, the 12 homicides uh, uh, cases from Rittman, but I just did brief, very brief um, uh, synopsis of each one of those, and then I ended the book with a double unsolved uh, suspicious nature death uh, to close the book out. But in, in the 47 Wadsworth cases, I also put, in each case, when I could, I put a map of um, of where it occurred in the city, and then I also put a picture of the location where it occurred, if the location was still standing.
1: I asked you to pick out one of the stories um, for us to feature, and Benny Moss Stiller is the one that came to your mind. Why did that case, of all of those cases, that you've you researched. Why did that one stick out to you?
3: Well, it was it was unsolved, and uh, the investigating officer is still alive. So I had a number of, uh, of uh, conversations with him, and uh, it, it, that was one of the frustrating ones. Well, not so much as frustrating as the very old ones, because that, that's where I ran into a problem with writing the book. because it was with my mind because on the, the very old cases were frustrating to me because I'm writing them and I'm saying, well, why didn't they just do this? And then the, I realized, well, it's because they didn't have the tools and technology that we have today. And, uh, so that's what made the old ones frustrating to me. But, but Benny's, I thought that, I thought that one could have been, could have been solved. I mean, everybody you talk to has theories about it, but, uh, it was it was interesting that they gave everyone polygraphs and everyone passed, and I just I don't know something's strange there.
1: I was really intrigued by this case. I mean, it was really kind of gruesome. I, I was trying to figure out was he the he was taken from the ladder, so clearly he was on the ladder when they found him. Do you think that that furnace? Do you think like fire engulfed him or did he die from the heat?
3: Well, no, he was, I see, that's it. There's just, a, there's so much missing there. And also, you know, even to the investigating officers because the body was removed before they even got there. So they didn't actually see him in the furnace. The investigating officer didn't, the fire department did. So, you know, I have a couple of theories of my own. Uh, But who knows? You know, was he was he trying to escape the fire or was he on the ladder when the
1: atmosphere around him ignited? You know, I don't know. Right. I was wondering if he was like coming down the ladder like, oh, no, this just got ignited. I don't know enough about those furnaces to know whether he had the time to make that decision and was actually trying to climb down the ladder. But you said you had a couple of theories. I know that another detective, one of his theories was that it might have been a prank that went wrong. How does that theory stack up with your own? Is that a possibility?
3: Well, uh, that was the investigating officers. The, the way he explained it to me was that, of course, the furnace is a, is a confined area, and he was in there cleaning it. So the, the cleaning solution was probably flammable. You know, that was back in the 70s. I don't know what the OSHA requirements were at that time for ventilation, even if there were any, I don't know. But he said that um, uh, there was a little metal flap on the outside of the furnace that you would move aside... And they would, that would uh, reveal a hole that went into the furnace. And what they had was a very long. Uh, what he explained it as a giant uh, uh, grill lighter. Uh, and he said when they would turn the furnace on, they would of course start the gas, move this little flap out of the way, put the igniter in the furnace, and it would just spark it, you know, it, to to ignite the gas in the in the furnace. He thinks that someone not thinking. That uh, about the uh, the environment that Benny was in with the, with the cleaning solution and all was just going to spook him with the spark and put this put the igniter in there and sparked it just to just to get him you know just to scare him a little bit and the the uh, either the solution in the confined space that he was in the atmosphere he was in immediately lit and then of course it would go right out uh, once the once the solution was burned. And, uh, so that would be the reason that the furnace would would remain cold or it was, it was on his coveralls or whatever he was wearing in there and, and those lit and that's what started the fire.
1: Is that your favorite theory or did you have another one?
3: Oh, I had a couple that I just, you know, the more I read like, like you said, there's not a lot to, you know, you really don't know. Uh, Sure. Do you want to share them? Sure. I, I thought, could the possibility, but he went to, started to come out of, of the furnace to, to climb the ladder and maybe he dropped a wrench. I don't even know if he had a wrench with him, but if he dropped it and it sparked when it, when it hit the floor of the furnace, that could have ignited an atmosphere that's rich in, uh, in and solution like that. Or maybe, you know, it was, it was break time, stopped to take a cigarette break without thinking and... You know, lit up a cigarette and, off. you know, boom, the, the interior of the furnace. And, and either of those would be like a flash fire, which would, you know, ignite just, you know, while the fumes were in the furnace. And then once the fumes were concerned by the fire, they would go out and that would keep the furnace cold. And that would also mean that uh, all of the employees could pass a polygraph test.
1: You know, I I guess I didn't realize, well, I guess I do now that I think about it, but you're saying when they found Benny, the furnace was cold, so the fire that killed him was brief, fierce enough to kill him, but then went out pretty quickly, and by the time they found him, the, there was no fire. Correct. Okay. All right. Got it. Thank you for that clarification. And I see that you're kind of relying on the idea that if everybody passed a polygraph, that adds a little more weight to maybe it was something Benny had done himself.
3: You know, I don't know if if, if OSHA had any, like, uh, at that time, if they had any, like, ventilation. You know, now they have ventilation uh, requirements and and uh, respirator requirements and you know usually you have to have two people in that sort of thing or a safety person and I don't think that they had them back at that time
1: yeah what an interesting case now aside from Benny why don't you tell us another story what's another story in your book that really sticks out in your mind
3: probably one of the first ones about uh, poor little Lily Birkbeck Uh, She was five years old and uh, poisoned by her stepmother.
1: Oh, when was that?
3: That was 1899.
2: Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on.
1: 1899. So tell us a little bit about about how that went down. Her father and a woman he was staying with,
3: uh, who, I, I mean, I called her a stepmother. I don't, don't know if they were married or not, came from England and was staying with um, relatives here in, in Wadsworth Township. People were saying, you know, that, that Lily didn't look good. And, and they said the, the, the father... And the woman he lived with, the, the the evil stepmother, I call her in the book, uh, yeah. said, that, said that she had a, uh, a seizure, fell out of bed, and hit her head. And uh, through the investigation, poor Lily was exhumed twice. They found traces of arsenic, and the doctor down there, the lab down there, wanted more organs, so they dug poor Lily up again. They sent more organs down, and they found even more arsenic. Now the weird thing is is that the the father and this woman were arrested and charged charged with adultery. <laughs> and that's, oh, that was a
1: crime yeah. back then. Yes.
3: Yeah. And they were sentenced to Medina County Jail and they spent their jail time and people were in an uproar because the prosecutor at the time took the murder or the death of Lily to a grand jury before he got the results back from Ohio state. And Lily was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in Lodsworth on Thanksgiving day in an unmarked grave. And I never found out anymore about the, uh, uh, the, the case. And so I hate stories with the, uh, with no ending. So I, um, contacted Common Police Court, and, and the, the ladies there in the Archive Division, oh, they are so wonderful. They they dug and dug and dug and found absolutely no case where, uh, where the father or the woman were, was ever charged with anything other than the adultery.
1: Did they actually serve time for their adultery? I think 10 days. <laughs> days? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, what is next for you, Chief? You got another book in you?
3: Actually, sitting here
1: beside me on a
3: flash drive, I do, but it won't be—it won't be one uh, that, that uh, you'll be talking about. I don't think it's not—not not quite your, uh, your your cup of tea there. No this mysteries one, in there? <laughs> uh, no. Well, yeah, but not really. <laughs> that was I, I in doing the Wadsworth area homicide book. You know, I come across a lot of locations and stuff, and, and I um, decided to do one, um, and I just started it, actually, on uh, Wadsworth, Ohio, how the streets got their names, and it's basically uh, for Wadsworth transplants or younger generations of, of Wadsworthites who uh, might not know, you know who some of the streets are named after or why and what these people did to get streets named after them, so that's what I'm working on now.
1: That is really interesting that you bring that up because the week before your episode here is airing. So let me put it this way, because last week we did an episode uh, about Peg and Twistle, a woman who had spent some time in Ohio. She ended up killing herself by jumping off the H in the Hollywood sign. Out in, in Hollywood, California. Oh. But we went on to tell a extra bonus story about Holly, how Hollywood was named and oh. designed oh. and owned by a woman from Ohio. Oh. And one of the things we learned was that this woman named the original streets in Hollywood for friends, family, and places back in Ohio in Hicksville and Canton. But oh. we couldn't find a list. I was like, we yeah. need a list of what the Hollywood streets are and what the connection to Ohio was. So yeah. if somebody had done a book like you're going to do, we could have got those questions answered.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's what I said. Basically, it's for Wandsworth transplants and, and the younger generation so that you know they, they know who, who some of these people are.
1: Yeah, well, good for you for preserving that history before it's lost. Because the further you get away from those kinds of stories, the more the less likely are you you're able to find the details that you need. So oh, okay. good, good for you. Well, Chief, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and thanks for writing a, a great book. Now, I understand you, there was a small printing issued and it sold out, but yes. there might be a second printing coming.
3: Yes, I, I did the everything on the book up to the point of paying for it <laughs> i uh i worked with the printer and everything and, and got it all set up and then i went looking for funding and the Wazer Theory historical society uh, came up with the funding to uh to fund the book and uh they had 100 books printed and they went pretty quickly just ordered another 70 and they should be out uh yet this week i would say either thursday or friday of this week
1: So that is the Wadsworth Area Historical Society. I have a feeling those books are going to go fast, so I'm not even going to tell people, you know, to hope that they can get them. But you can also see this book at the Wadsworth uh, Library.
3: Uh, Yeah, well, actually, um, the Historical Society, like a lot of other things, uh, is affected by COVID, so they are closed. The, The Johnson House is closed. However, Project Learn owns a used bookstore downtown called The Bookshelf, uh, which is at 130 Main Street right on the square in Wadsworth, and they are going to sell them in there for the historical society.
1: Oh, good. Okay. I would
3: would say either Thursday or Friday they should be in, in the bookshelf downtown
1: alright well that by the time this episode's run that will be um, about a week and a half old so if you are interested go check it out and if for some reason they have sold out just know that when the pandemic is over you're going to be able to go to the library and uh, and find this book there unless right. you got a, it, got a copy it's, it's preserved the, over there
3: yeah it's in the uh, local history room at the Wadsworth Library
1: got it Very good. Well, Chief, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more, on this and every episode,
1: hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Nimbus Cloud is the working name of one Terry Gibbs, a talented musician from Cleveland, Ohio, who specializes in indie rock and indie pop. Terry is a one-man show, doing all his own producing, recording, and mixing, and right now he's working on a new EP called Fog Heart, which he expects to release next month. Terry said he wanted to put his own twist on Have You Ever Seen the Rain, a song that was made popular by Creedence Clearwater Revival because a friend challenged him to do it. You can find out more about Nimbus Cloud on Instagram and SoundCloud, and you can stream him
4: on Spotify.
1: Spotify.
0: Well, let's have another listen to Have You Ever Heard the Rain by Nimbus Cloud. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.